Hello, this is Zoe Midler, the host and moderator of Not a Rocking Chair Librarian podcast, and welcome to episode 24, Advocate for Access, Equity, and Opportunity, featuring Jonathan Hunt, coordinator of Library Media Services for the San Diego County Office of Education and Vice President of Professional Development for the California School Library Association. Jonathan came across my radar in 2019 when a colleague on Twitter tweeted out a link to his school library journal article from 2018, Advocate This, Not That. If you just type into Google, Advocate This, Not That, that article should pop up right as the first thing in your search results. Jonathan recommends reframing library advocacy talking points to better illustrate how K-12 libraries and librarianship directly support and contribute to four system level priorities. He identifies these priorities as equity and access, curriculum and instruction, college and career readiness, and universal design for learning versus the typical or more traditional library advocacy talking points around reading, information literacy, ed tech, and collection development. To quote Jonathan from the article, many of the typical library advocacy talking points simply don't cut it anymore. We need to reframe key school library elements to bring into better focus our meaningful contributions to four important system level priorities. After reading the article, I was curious about what prompted Jonathan to write the article, what was the state or is the state of K-12 libraries and librarianship in San Diego County and California in general? What has he done in his role as coordinator of library uh, media services to support the advocacy approach he outlines in the article? And what if any changes or shifts or wins have resulted from his recommendation to reframe library advocacy talking points? I want to highlight two titles Jonathan recommended during our conversation in case you want to check them out. Both are available on Amazon. The first title is Coherence, the Right Drivers in Action for Schools, Districts, and Systems by Michael Fullen. And Learning to Improve, How America's Schools Can Get Better at Getting Better by Anthony Brick. Um, Both of those titles have multiple authors, so I'm just giving you the first ones that were listed. You can follow Jonathan on Twitter at jhunt24, at jhunt24. You can always follow me on Twitter at zmidler, at z-m-i-d-l-e-r. And remember, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, please take a minute and rate it and review it on Apple Podcast. Now let's hear from Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan, it's really nice to be able to talk to you today. I'm looking forward to talking to you about libraries, librarianship, and specifically about your School Library Journal article from 2018, Advocate This and Not That. Um, As I've already recorded in the intro to the podcast, it really resonated with me because I'm a former teacher librarian. I'm also uh, somebody who served in the capacity that you do, sort of as a library services coordinator. And it just really resonated with me because um, I, I wonder if we've been advocating correctly. Um, you know, are we talking about things the way we need to so they do um, have traction? So I, I just want to jump right in and I want to ask you um, uh, about a quote that you start off uh, the, article, the article with. I guess it's not first thing, but I know it's in there somewhere. Um, quote, when money gets tight, those programs with the greatest impact on the highest priorities are valued the most. After decades of chronic underfunding, the situation is especially dire here in California, where I live and work, where you live and work, and many of the typical advocacy talking points simply don't cut it anymore. 
So can you talk a little bit more about the, the quote, dire, unquote, situation in California and what, if anything, has changed as a result of the type of advocacy that, that you've been proposing and that you proposed in the article or recommended? Um, and then I have a follow-up to that is, you know, what have you done to educate or support or prepare administrators and librarians for this type of advocacy approach? Okay. And I can so, repeat, I can repeat anything for you if you need to. Okay. No, absolutely. <laughs> That's fine. So, um, the situation here in California is very interesting because San Diego County is the ninth largest county in the country in terms of population. And we have less than 60 teacher librarians mm -hmm. in the whole in the whole county. I would say we probably have an additional dozen um, certificated teachers that work in the library that are de facto school librarians just by virtue of, of working in the school library for so long. So um, between the official teacher librarians and the unofficial teacher librarians, we're only at about maybe six dozen, maybe... 72 librarians total mm -hmm. of those um of the of the official teacher librarians i only know of two that work at the elementary level mm -hmm. and um one i do have an elementary district that has certificated librarians mm -hmm. in um in their classroom so there's probably another 10 or so within that one district um so that is that stands in marked contrast to the recommendation from the California Department of Education, which is that you should have one teacher librarian mm -hmm. for every 785 students. One per 785? Yes. Oh. And so the ratio in California is like one for every 8,000. Wow. And so those those tend to be concentrated in the secondary schools, as I mentioned, in middle and high school. So teacher librarians within the elementary setting are virtually extinct here in the state of California. But it goes even beyond that. So you would figure, well, okay, they're not going to have a teacher librarian, but they will have a classified librarian. They'll have an hourly clerk that sits in the library for 30 to 40 hours a week checking books out to students. You would think that. <laughs> the reality is that some of our districts here, including the largest district um, in, in the county and the second largest one in the state, and that's San Diego Unified, the district commitment to the elementary sites is to staff um, eight hours per week. Mm -hmm. So that's basically one day a week. Mm -hmm. So their libraries are essentially open one day a week. If they would like additional time for the library to be open, then there might be site funds available to supplement that. Um, so a site might elect to, you know, to staff it with a teacher librarian or to staff more hours of a classified um, librarian, but that's really up to them. Hmm. So it's just, like I said, it's a very frustrating situation to be here in California with that kind of reality. And I feel like we have this national conversation going about how undervalued school librarians are, school library programs, information literacy. Um, but it's a different animal once you get to California. And I don't think people realize that, that your typical advocacy talking points 
don't carry a lot of water because what's happened is in 1973, we had a law called Prop 13 Mm -hmm. that was passed, which I don't know, you may know about Prop 13, but basically what it said was that when you buy a home, then your property tax can only go up minimally every year. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is that somebody that bought their home 50 or 60 years ago may only be paying taxes on a property that when they bought it, maybe it was worth ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars. And now it could be worth five, six, seven, eight hundred thousand. And the taxes have gone up, but not anywhere close to what it's worth now. Sure. So the um that chronic underfunding over forty years has gradually eroded the education support for everything in the state of California. So it's not just school libraries, it's arts education, it's Mm -hmm. facilities, it's, so everybody's looking for a handout and everybody has a dire need. Sure. So that's kind of, that's kind of like the extra little wrinkles that Mm -hmm. um, California proposes is that we have four decades of chronic underfunding that's gradually caught up to us. Um, And so you have situations where, where maybe in other places, school librarians were allowed to evolve into technology specialists mm-hmm. or, you know, and teachers on special assignment or some of these other roles. Um, and that's not quite the case in the state of California. So let me ask you, even though, even if they evolved into something else, were they still required to be responsible <clears throat> for library operations? So... The the California Education Code requires that school districts provide school library services mm. to students, um, and it's and it furthermore it says that that is to be provided by a credentialed librarian, mm. and that if you don't have a credentialed librarian, that you can contract with an outside agency. That could be a public library. Mm. So we have some schools here in our county where the public library is here and the school library is right next to it. And so they contract with the public library or an office such as the San Diego County Office of Education, which provides support and outreach to all 42 districts Mm -hmm. in San Diego County. So... um, I lost my train of thought. No, so I guess what you're, I mean, yeah, I was asking you if even if they evolve into another role, would they still be required to be responsible for library operations, making sure, you know, kids can come in right. and check? I mean, I, I, I'm speaking to kind of in a not so covert way about the, you know, uh, spreading people pretty thin. Right. Yeah. Right. And we have, um, see, we, we only have, we have two district librarian positions in the whole county. There are a lot more up north where there might not be teacher librarians at the site, but there might be one person at the district office that's a teacher librarian. Mm-hmm. So here in San Diego County, I only know of one. San Diego Unified has a teacher librarian, a district librarian. And then um, another district has a district librarian for elementary people, but they're letting, they're letting that Currently, that position is eliminated. They may bring it back. So, I mean, for 42 districts, I personally, I contract with 17 different districts. Those districts represent 100,000 students (laughs) and, you know, and hundreds of building sites. So there's no way that I'm really technically their librarian. I'm a consultant at best. But when you you think of 500,000 students in San Diego County, 
I've got 100,000 of them that I'm the only teacher librarian mm -hmm. for them. Then you've got San Diego Unified. There's probably 150,000 um, students in that district, and there's only one teacher librarian mm -hmm. um, for those students. And so, and then the other half of the county just doesn't have anybody. So they're mm -hmm. not really compliant with the ed code and there's no accountability. There's sure. nobody to come enforce that, to levy a fine or a penalty or anything. There's just no political will to do that. Gotcha. So the follow-up question that I had there was, you know, after you put these ideas out there about reframing, um, you know, how successful has, ha I mean, not so much successful, but how, what have you done to educate sure. and change, you know, and, and get some support? And I mean, it's, it's a pretty big shift for a lot of librarians to think about talking yes. in, in these kind of right. reframing, reframing kind of ideas. Cause we're so, you know, we get so siloed or we're, we're so in our swim lane about what we, you know, what we provide the value we add. So I'm kind of curious what you've been able to do from an either education perspective or from a, continuing of your own advocacy about this to, you know, to, right. to get this ingrained or make a change? So my, unfortunately, my role to this point, even two years later, has been one of building awareness. Mm -hmm. um, because like you mentioned, it is a paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. It's a new way of thinking about the school library. So I have presented at various conferences to various audiences. Sometimes the audience is for administrators, mm -hmm. Sometimes the audience is teachers. Sometimes the audience is library staff. Um, so I continue to do speaking opportunities. What I would really like to do, um, however, and I, I have slowly tried to pull in allies or groups of people that are willing to do this, but... Um, you know, when it comes to advocacy, I... I, I you know, I go through all the failed attempts that I've done. So, like, the first attempt was the school library impact studies, right? Yeah. There's two dozen of these. They link academic achievement to school libraries. We're the only people that read them, mm -hmm. right? Nobody else reads them. Nobody else cares. So, I feel like those don't really have the amount of impact mm -hmm. that we would hope. Um, another thing that, another iteration of an advocacy tool that we have tried and, and kind of discarded is the, the district library plan. The idea being that if you bring a group of stakeholders together, including, you know, teachers, librarians, classified staff, parents, you know, district administrators, site administrators, mm -hmm. and you bring everybody together and you um, create a district library plan and you come up with with priorities and a plan for implementing these, um, then um, then you're, you're able to revisit that on an annual basis and make progress toward that. And you might not make all the progress that you want, but you make slow incremental process. And I have um, participated in that process before, and I've been an observer of that process. And I have seen gains for people who are committed to the process, but the thing that's really frustrating is eventually a leadership change happens. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I and totally if, get that. <laughs> and and if, if, if that hasn't been internalized into the system, that librarians are important and they are a priority, then they end up going by the wayside. Yeah. So the next iteration is this thing called network improvement communities. Hmm. 
that you can read about. I'll give you a. I'll give you and your listeners a pair of books um, that you might be interested in. One is called Coherence mm-hmm. by Michael Fullan, and that's a very slender book. Um, <laughs> the premise of Michael Fullan's book is that if you want to make improvements or changes in complex systems, you need to find the right driver. Mm-hmm. And what, what he means by that is that of all the many things that you could do to impact the change you want to bring about, which one has the highest leverage? Mm-hmm. So just focusing on those one or two things that are going to create the momentum and sustain the momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's Coherent by Michael Fullan. The other one is called Learning to Improve. It has multiple co-authors, but the lead author is Anthony Brick. B-R-Y-K. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. (laughs) Um, Learning to Improve, which talks about, which is very similar to coherence in that it's looking at things from a systems level perspective and talking about how by focusing on a few priorities and doing um, and making gradual changes, you can evolve Uh, They're called PDSA cycles, plan, do, study, act. If you make these small incremental changes and test them out, rather than rolling out, you see this so often at the systems level. We're going to get, everybody's going to do this program. We're going to roll it out and everybody's going to do it at the same time. Whereas if they had field tested it at a site or a classroom, they could have refined it before they did the big rollout and solved a lot of the problems that come up. Um, so those are two books that I read that kind of led me to thinking if we could take some of these, like you said, some of this new advocacy language that Mm -hmm. I outlined and do a networked improvement community where you have people from different systems, different districts coming together collaboratively to solve problems around making the library a more you know, functional part of the school ecosystem, then I think that for me, that would be probably the way to go. I have slowly reached out and tried to talk different districts into doing it. um, And it's kind of hard to get everybody on the same page. So I haven't been wholly successful Mm -hmm. at that level yet. So I I would say I'm definitely still in the building awareness phase. Mm -hmm. Um, I've gotten a lot of positive response from the message, mm-hmm. um, but I haven't been able to coalesce it around a committee or a group of people that are, you know, what what those books describe as a networked improvement community. Um, those are great resources. Thanks for sharing those. I'll definitely make sure that I uh, chat those up also in the intro, which I go and I record after we talk, <laughs> <laughs> just for this reason. Yeah. Um, Well, that was a great segue for me because, you know, we were, you're talking about the systems and the, my next set of questions are really about um, the four system level priorities you identified in the article. And um, so I want to start with, you know, equity. So uh, this is kind of a strange segue, but we, when we talk, when we, as librarians, when we talk about advocacy, like I said, I think we tend to sort of stay in that swim lane. Well, I can talk about reading and I can talk about reading literacy because that's what I've been trained to do. And that's what, you know, right. what, what my program has taught me about. And what you're suggesting is let's not talk about it as just reading. Let's talk about it as equity and access. So yes. one of the things that you talk about in the article is 
there are a lot of barriers to this idea of equitable access. So what are some of the ways school systems knowingly or unknowingly create barriers to access for students that need it the most? I mean, what, what are you seeing where, where you work? Oh, I'm, this is, I see this all over the country. Um, here's one. So there's a study that says that kids that have home libraries of 500 books mm-hmm. um, will accomplish three additional years of schooling beyond that which their peers attain. Mm-hmm. And that that access to that level of access is especially critical um, for disadvantaged students. Mm-hmm. Okay, because like middle class students, students that have a lot of supports, they're not going to fall through the cracks. Maybe they don't have 500 books. Maybe they only have 100 or 300, but they've got some other supports. But Mm -hmm. for those disadvantaged kids that don't have the supports, then it's especially critical for them to have access to a home library of 500 books, Mm -hmm. preferably. So if you, and if you can't have 500, every book up to that makes a measurable difference according to the study. And then there was a follow-up study that confirmed the results. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we know that this is critical and we know that two thirds of low socioeconomic children have no books in the home, um, and we know that they may have problems getting those books from a bookstore, in their community or a public library in their community and we know that they come to school every day um we let them come to the library and i'm talking about our very youngest readers okay i'm talking about those transitional kindergarten students preschool Mm -hmm. kindergarten first grade um we often bring them into our school libraries and how many books do they get a check out the kids that need 500 books mm-hmm. get to check out one or two books, mm-hmm. okay? Well, I don't know about your public library, but mine has an unlimited amount. You, There is no official limit to the number of books that I can check out from my public library um, on any given visit. So you've got these kids that desperately need the books, and they're only allowed to check out one or two at the most, and oftentimes in kinder or first grade, they're not allowed to take them home. Yeah. So I'm a parent of a, of a six-year-old boy. He's in first grade. Fortunately, when he was in kindergarten, we saw the library book that he was able to check out. So in kindergarten, he was able to bring his library book home. Mm-hmm. I've never seen his library book in first grade. Mm-hmm. And, his, and um, they know me. They know <laughs> literacy is really important. So... I think they appropriately matched my kid with a a teacher that loves reading and is very Mm -hmm. excited about literacy and everything. Um, And yet, I don't know if that's a first grade policy. I don't know if it's a school policy. But fortunately, I don't have a disadvantaged child. But we are at a Title I school. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a dual immersion school. Um, So those kids that don't have any books at their home, those kids that live in the trailer park across from the street that might not have books in their home, and they're in kinder and first grade, and they're already behind the, you know, behind Mm -hmm. the rest of their peers, and you're not letting them check the books out, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, 
and if they lose a book, right? Yeah. Heaven forbid, heaven forbid that they should lose a book that really probably should have been, that like eight times out of 10 should have been weeded out of the <laughs> library anyway, if you had been doing the weeding as aggressively as you should, but because you're not getting funds from the library and because your hours were cut back, nobody's done weeding properly in the building. So, you know, I mean, there's a difference between losing Diary of a Wimpy Kid and losing that book that is old and ratty and nobody would probably miss, you know, right. miss it. And they're probably doing you a favor by walking, walking out with it. So that's an example for me of kind of some of the systemic barriers to mm -hmm. equity that we you know, that we kind of put up, you know, and at some point the kids need to be more important than the books. Well, um, I know we're actually talking on a Google Hangout right now and uh -huh. I want to put my head down because <laughs> as a librarian, I have been guilty of this. Oh, okay. You know, I, I, I didn't think about it like that. Right. Uh -huh. Um, sometimes right. again, I think you do. I think you get caught up in the fact that I only have X number of books Right. Um, I have to make sure every kid gets a book that wants a book. I can't weed because they're not giving any money, giving me any money to do collection, uh -huh. to do reasonable collection development. You know, it is kind of a, I'm not making excuses, but it's kind of a, a vicious cycle for the librarian in some respects right. too. But um, right. I have to say, I, I've been guilty of that, and um, this has been really eye-opening part of the conversation for me. So, right. thank you. Um, but I do, I think framing the conversation around equity and access is going to resonate better, uh -huh. especially yeah. with I would think with parents, it would really resonate as well. Yeah, and I mean, that's just one example. There are others. I'll give you another example. My first grader brings home a baggie full of books, right? Mm -hmm. For independent reading practice, okay? As do many kids, okay? So these are the books you're sending him home to practice on that are supposed to make him excited about reading, mm -hmm. okay? So I want you to look and see what you're sending home in the baggie. Like, if I had to make you read that book, would that make you excited about reading? Right. Or would you rather have Mo Willems' Elephant and Piggy series? Would you rather have, you know what I'm saying? Um, so the books that we give our kids to practice in those book baggies, I think that's another issue, you know? Um, we, we're all guilty of doing things to make our lives easier and mm -hmm. advocate for the collection and hold on to the collection for other kids. We used to do this trick where, like, it was a time management thing where you'd take all the first grade books, you'd check them in, you'd mix them up, and you'd put them on different tables, and you'd have kids pick off the table. Oh, yeah. So you were limiting their choices. It was helping you so you didn't have to shelve any of the books. You know what I'm saying? But in terms of, you know, exciting their curiosity and their passion, you know. Yes. I can, I mean, we could spend all day. I could spend all day <laughs> talking about, like no. you said, the things that we do yeah. that we could, you know, hang our heads in shame about. Yeah, but, no, um, I, I, I agree with all of that. And it would be yeah. interesting to do a podcast interview just about yeah. all these things that we knowingly or unknowingly or we thought we were maybe doing for the betterment of the student. But in actuality, um, we were limiting choice. And, you know, right. I, 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 I can see that. So, um, yeah. well, thank you for those examples. I appreciate it. Um, the other uh, system level priority you talk about is instead of talking about information literacy, um, uh -huh. you know, talk about curriculum and instruction. So what do you see as the biggest obstacle to systemic librarian or teacher collaboration, what you call, you know, uh, quote, integrated 
instruction, unquote. And I guess this might go a little bit back to where you are right now with building awareness. But um, I mean, so what are some of the obstacles that you're seeing to making it happen more routinely? I mean, you even suggest just collaborating once a year, like every teacher collaborating once a year with their librarian. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you from my own experience, that was sometimes incredibly difficult. Um, Even when you have somebody who is super passionate and assertive and you know, is really proactive with teachers. It was just a really hard thing to pull off. No, um, it's definitely very hard. And it's, it's hard because we don't have collaboration time built into our schedules mm-hmm. um, very well. Um, but, you know, the thing is collaboration, not all forms of collaboration are equal. You know, as I mentioned in the article, citing yeah. another um, scholar, you know, mm-hmm. you have that... Um, what I call like, um, like there's coordination, like juggling the schedule. I'm going to arrange the schedule so everybody has access to the library, or we're going to share the state report books in such a fashion that each teacher will get to use them Mm -hmm. for the, you know, for the, for the fifth grade state report books. Then you have, um, what I call collaboration. What I call it hallway collaboration. It typically works (laughs) like this. Um, I need books on, bumblebees can you pull all the books on the bumblebees and have them on a cart for me when i come to pick the kids up you know it's like a bear it's like you scratch my back please mm-hmm. you know it's not there's no it's us just being customer service oriented yeah you know but really what we really want is a situation where um the teacher and the librarian sit down and plan teach and assess a project or a lesson together. And it is it's, it is incredibly challenging. Mm-hmm. And then the integrated um, curriculum is when you can do that at least once. I call it the mythical unicorn, right? Because I'm not <laughs> sure that it's ever been accomplished. You know, have we really been able to, to collaborate with the PE teacher or the special ed teacher or yeah. whatever? But that would be the goal. But if we did get to that point, we would be so indispensable to the fabric um, you know, of the school community that they they wouldn't think of, you know, cutting our hours. In fact, they'd probably want more of us, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they would want to uh, put more money into it. Um, and then from my perspective, from the coordinator of library media services or the district, then there's a super mythical, <laughs> uh, uh, the super mythical unicorn is how do you make sure that that happens at every school in the district? And that you can't point to that school and say, well, it happens there because they're rich over there. Or there's a cult of personality around Mm -hmm. that teacher librarian. Or, you know, there are excuses. But is is there a way that you can make it happen across the district so it's not just a flash in the pan kind of a phenomenon? Um, I think it's incredibly difficult to do. But the studies that I have seen, um, David Lurcher did a study Mm -hmm. um, that was really some of the really... um, the part that I loved was the appendix where he collected data from the teachers about what the advantages mm-hmm. of the collaboration were and what some of the dis- or what made it so difficult um, are enormously instructive. Mm-hmm. As well as the sur- the survey results were that um, you know before teaching solo and independent like. They had very little confidence that 100% of their students were getting, you know, achieving the objective. And then it, it, it jumped to 75 to 100%. Right. 
um, when they collaborated with, uh, with a teacher librarian. Well, I can't tell you how many conferences I've been to where, you know, you go to a session and a teacher librarian is there and they brought teachers with them to do almost a uh -huh. panel sort of advocacy conversation about how beneficial it's been to them as teachers and to the right. students to do this collaboration. I mean, time after time, I've even done panel sessions right. like that. Right. And, and I, you know, I started as a teacher librarian in 2007 and I just feel like, you know, we're continuing to have the same conversation and now it's 2020 yep. and it's not, it's, it's not like, oh, woe's me and it's never going to change. I just think that framing the conversation, especially with administrators about, um, you know, again, instead of about being about information literacy and research strategy instruction, how we can add value to the experience of learning to both the teacher and the student and vice versa. If, mm -hmm. if we could really get beyond, you know, what you're describing as what I would actually what I described as drive by cooperation, <laughs> you know, right. the hallway scenario where, hey, I saw right. you, I saw that you were working on this unit, you know, would you like X, Y or Z, you know, um, but right. it, it is it's interesting to me that we're, you know, we're still having this conversation. Um, right. Maybe that's just the way it is until administrators and teachers go through the same programs that librarians are going through. <laughs> uh -huh. I think that. Um... I mean, it's definitely a challenge. I can remember being on the other side. I, like I said, there are not teacher librarians in the state of California in the elementary level, and that's where I started my career as a, as a fifth grade teacher. So I didn't realize that it was a career path for me. Mm -hmm. um, I moved to a middle school that had a teacher librarian and um, was surprised to find out that such a thing existed in the state of California. You know, and she was always saying, oh, I can help you, I can help you, I can help you. And I just, I didn't know what that meant, you know, mm -hmm. until I went through, like you said, then you go through the program and you see it from a different set of eyes. We, you know, and when I was in that district um, where, the, the, where I first became a teacher librarian, we had a teacher, you know, they have this practice in our district of they had these people that had to go out on leaves for some reason or another, and then they came back to a classroom. Sometimes they would reassign them. So we had a we had one of the best sixth grade teachers in the whole district was reassigned to a teacher librarian, mm -hmm. uh, and he just said it completely opened my eyes. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I feel like. I feel like the kind of stuff that we need is we need people to do like fellowships in the school library. Um, if we could have like, if you could have like somebody take a leave of absence from their first grade classroom or their third grade classroom and work in the school library as the second teacher librarian, mm -hmm. and then take that perspective and go back into their classroom, then I think slowly you would change the culture of the school because people would understand what a resource it was. Um, but that also assumes that if you do, I mean, I love this idea of, it's kind of uh -huh. like the idea of um, pineapple visits. I don't know if you know what those are. Um, no. It's a kind of PD where um, pineapples are the, I guess, the universal symbol of being of welcome in Hawaii or something. <laughs> I know just uh -huh. enough to be dangerous here, but um, pineapple visits were um, like you put up a chart and you say so and so's teaching a particular unit at this time, and you know if you are a teacher in another room and you want to come watch that lesson be taught, right? Oh, okay. You could come and watch and observe. It's not it's not evaluative. You don't actually interact. Okay. You're just there to observe. So my point is that um, you know having these people go in the library would be great if they're actually paired with a librarian who can show them this art of the possible, right? 
I mean, uh -huh. there still are a, a large number of librarians who see their job in very sort of specific terms. Right. So, you know, I, I, want, I would love that. I just always wonder, you know, could you, will you always get the librarian who's going to really show you what is possible? Right. So, right. Now, I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer there, but I just worry no, about no, that. No, no, no. And I'm just like, I know that like some of the, th some of the ideas that I come up with, that only being one of them, um, <laughs> You know, another one is, well, the, the fact is we need to do something to shake up people's paradigm yes. and to change the conversation around what school libraries really are in this day and age and what school librarians actually do. And, um, you know, I think radically redefining the roles um, of the school librarian at the site um, through a program like that or... You know, we had a situation where they were going to eliminate all, a large district here was going to eliminate their classified librarians. Hmm. And they thought that they were, they thought that they would be able to staff the library with vice principals before they realized, oh, there's this union contract that says <laughs> if you eliminate these classified people, you can't like staff them with, um, you know, with other people. Mm -hmm. But I think the idea of having a vice principal in the library, I think um, I would like to think of the school library as kind of like the vice principal of curriculum and instruction anyway, mm. you know, and I would like to see them collaborating and be recognized as the curriculum and instruction resource on the campus so that we don't need that math TOSA, you know, or right. that ELA TOSA, or the ELD TOSA, mm -hmm. or the tech TOSA. Um, you know, the, in San Diego County, we don't have teacher librarians, but we have schools that have come up with these other, you know, teacher on special assignment roles and responsibilities. Yeah. So in my mind, those could be teacher librarian positions. They're just called by a different name. No, and actually, I, I saw that somewhere else where um, a person was promoted to the district level having formerly been a librarian, um, and they were library services coordinator slash materials, um, like, I don't know if they were a coordinator or a director of instructional materials, and, uh -huh. and while that had a bit of a bent to it of being very administrative and sort of like, you know, buy the books, make sure the books are delivered, because of that person's background, I think that they were able to add a lot of value in that uh -huh. role, right? Like, you know, so that was at the district level, but I agree with you, that would be a really interesting way to um, reposition the librarian yeah. and really take advantage of the fact that their fingers and are in all the pies in that way. Yeah, yeah I like that idea. Yeah, so ultimately I think that, I think that what we need is we need a superintendent that has been a school librarian. <laughs> Wouldn't that be lovely? Which is, I wonder if such a thing even exists mm. anywhere in our country, meaning somebody that's been the school librarian that then became a principal or mm -hmm. a district administrator and works their way up and is a superintendent, you know, um, because obviously a lot of times they have the final say in terms of resource allocation. So yeah. yeah. Sometimes when I get super pessimistic, I think that's the only way forward. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I like that glass half full kind of thinking. <laughs> yeah. um, the, the third um, of your system level priorities was college and career readiness versus talking yes. about ed tech. So yes. have you encountered, I guess, 
uh, maybe this is showing a little bit of what I've experienced, so um, I want to say that on the, the beginning of the question, but have you encountered any pushback from librarians that don't think makerspaces or creating immersive learning experiences is something they need to provide? You know, it's not what I signed up for. I'm not a CS teacher. I'm about what do robots uh -huh. and 3D printers have to do with books? And I'm just curious uh -huh. if you got any of that um, pushback and if how'd you, how, how have you addressed it? I get that all the time. <laughs> I get it all the time. Now, granted, most of the people that I'm working with, like like I said, a large portion of them are classified people. Mm -hmm. um, but there's even pushback from a lot of um, certificated librarian staff. Mm -hmm. And I think the resentment comes from um, there's this great new idea. It needs a space. And then we're just going to dump it into the library because um, there's no place else for it. Because why not? So, <laughs> right, right. And so they're given... The thing is, people know, people know that school libraries need some kind of renaissance or renovation. They just don't know what it is. So if you look at like the, the history of school libraries, you know, we, we had the school library and then we had like the library media center, right? We added VHS and DVD and, you know, CD-ROMs and, and, um, and things like that, you know? Um, and then we kind of evolved into the learning commons, right? Where we, we weeded the book really, the book collection really aggressively. We put the comfortable seating in. We did bookstore displays. We did, you know, kind of um, genrefication. You mm -hmm. know, they could bring their, you know, their hot chocolate into the <laughs> library. You know, we put computers in there. So that's what I would call like the learning common phase. And then we went to the this makerspace phase, right? Which is, I I myself was really resistant to to the makerspace because I just didn't see how it fit. It was just very, um, I didn't understand the vision of makerspaces in the school library. It just seemed like a very convenient place to locate this new product or service. And makerspaces, as you know, are all about experiential learning, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that, one of the things that people are frustrated about a makerspace is that a tinker lab, what's the difference between a tinker lab and a makerspace, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, a tinker lab is there's just a bunch of stuff they can play with, right? Mm -hmm. Unsupervised. Well, that's the last thing a librarian needs, right? <laughs> oh, here, play with all this stuff that I'm going to have to clean up later. Yeah. Um, and so then the makerspace needs, like, it needs explicit instruction and they need, like, a design challenge and those kinds of things in a more formally structured environment. So we had the whole makerspace thing. So the, the newest and best iteration for me is this idea of a learning lab. Mm -hmm. So this was first developed um, at the Chicago Public Library mm -hmm. um, in collaboration with some partners, and it's UMedia Chicago. They created this um, team space that is essentially... There's a heavy makerspace component there, but it tends to be digital media. So they're creating, um, there's like a recording studio or a green screen, or they're doing movie maker um, or things of that nature. Um, so I think that the learning lab um, idea is one that I think incorporates and builds on all the previous iterations of the school library. And if, the, if that's the one that, for me, makes the most sense about just 
And what I mean about, like, not just arguing ed tech, I feel like a lot of times we get so enthusiastic about what the kids are into that we just want to adopt it without really thinking about to what purpose or what is the goal, you know? Yeah. Um, like, I'll give you an example. I was a middle school librarian. I got to school early. The kids knew that I got to school early. So they would line up at the library door. I would let them in, and it was boys. They would all, the gaggle of boys would run over to the computer. They would sit down, and they would they would pull up YouTube, and they would watch a gaming video. Sure. Meaning they would watch a video tape, a video of somebody else playing a video game. They were they were observing somebody else. They weren't playing the game themselves. So in that kind of a situation, the th- there's an instinct in us librarians where we say, well, why don't we bring a game in so that you can actually play it, mm-hmm. right? And immediately we would get pushback. Um, number one, there's not a budget for that kind of two, uh, thing. But number two. What are they learning, mm-hmm. right? They're not learning anything. But the, um, you know, the theory behind learning labs are you need to have this exploratory phase in order to move on to a, a more progressively immersive learning space. So, mm-hmm. so they come in. I get my video game set up. Maybe we have a video gaming club. Maybe we even move it to a coding club where mm-hmm. they're moving from from being consumers to being creators. Maybe I have mm-hmm. a speaker come into the library to talk about their career path um, to being a gamer, like what kind of education they needed, how much money they earned, what they wish they'd done differently. And maybe we can even get some kind of internship or we can get some kind of, you know, maybe there's a high school, um, you know, a career pathway that they can follow in high school. So that's, I, I think that when you look at the ed tech that you put in your library, you have to really think um, about what's the big picture, mm-hmm. right? It's like, I'm, I don't just want to bring toys into, into the library, although toys are wonderful in their own right. Um, but, you know, I want kids to be able to come in and ex- use those toys um, in uh, an unstructured setting, but, you know, before, after school, during lunch, but also the teachers can come down and we can do a more formal collaborative project in a more structured environment that's going to allow them to explore their interests and hopefully choose a career path. Um, I don't know. Have you ever heard of Anythink Libraries here in Colorado? Uh, I have not. Um, well, it's the, it's the public library system. I want to say it's Adams County, but anyway, um, Pam, uh-huh. Pam Sandley and Smith is the director, and she basically is describing what you're describing, but um, they, they call it leveling up the patron uh-huh. experience, right? So if a student comes in and says, I'm interested in photography, well, sure, maybe you'll start, start them off with a book about photography. And the next time they uh-huh. come in, maybe you'll have them, I go online and look at some great, you know, great images that photographers, famous photographers. The next time they come in, maybe you'll have a camera, uh-huh. <laughs> right? And let them play right. with and explore the camera. So as a librarian, I kind of always feel like when I got pushed back, I would always just say, look, it's kind of our job to keep sort of pulling at that thread and understanding how we can level up the experience for the patron. And I think um, Anythink Libraries is, is, like I said, it's the way they've branded that public library group. Um, but it is, it's just constantly trying to figure out what is, the, what is the thread you can pull on to keep the students interested and 
you know, if a kid comes in and says, I'm interested in learning about, you know, the history of robots, well, again, I'll give them uh-huh. a book about that. And then maybe eventually I'll have them sit down and do some coding or play with right. some robots. So I, you know, I, I, I understand um, the resentment argument, you know, it's time, it's stuff. Yeah. I can't even get money for books and yet you want to put all this stuff in here. But I also think at the same time, it shouldn't be just dismissed out of hand because it is our job to figure out what, you know, what they're interested in and keep making it more immersive and experiential. I mean, and that's a philosophy I have. I don't know if everybody shares that, but that's certainly mine. (laughs) So I I appreciate framing the conversation around college and career readiness and, you know, what we're doing for them versus just talking about the tech because that has become, you know, sort of the thing we all go to now. Well, we have to have computers. We have to have this. We have to have that. Well, but, but why? So, yeah. Um, So the last um, system level priority you talk about is universal design for learning. Okay. Versus talking about collection development. And um, I absolutely wholeheartedly agree with you that, to quote you, uh, libraries are perfectly positioned to support all three UDL principles, representation, expression, and engagement. So in your role, how do you help librarians develop programs and uh, services and programs that support UDL? I mean... I know we're talking about universal design for learning being about collection development, but has it gone beyond that or is it still just about collection development in your mind? Um, You know, so again, like most of this stuff, I'm still in the building awareness kind of phase. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm getting it out there to people that this is the idea. This is what you kind of need to do to be building, um, to building not just your collection, but your services, mm-hmm. um, you know, because UDL has, has three core principles, right? Mm-hmm. You've got, and so what you, the, the principle behind UDL is that um, everybody learns in very unique ways and everybody's way of learning is as unique as a snowflake or a fingerprint. Mm-hmm. And so that in order to build bridges for everybody to learn at the at the best possible way for them in their very unique way um if you build in multiple means of representation right and that's Mm -hmm. where the collection development comes in because if i'm if i'm if i'm a teacher and i'm teaching my kids about dinosaur and i stay in the classroom then i'm limited by the textbook okay i have one-to-one devices so that's not as true now as it was you know 20 Mm -hmm. years ago but um but by bringing them into the school library, you have that rich online world, but then you have a variety of books on dinosaurs and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. Um, but then the second thing is multiple means of action mm-hmm. and expression. And so if you've done some of those makerspace things that we were talking about, yeah. then one kid can do a PowerPoint presentation. One kid can do an oral report. Mm-hmm. Somebody else can build something in Minecraft. Somebody else can do an arts and crafts project to demonstrate their learning and communicate and synthesize what and share what it is they've learned. And then the other one is multiple means of engagement, which... Typically, in a school library research project, you have so the child has some say over what it is that they're they're going to be studying within certain parameters, right? Yeah. Pick a state, pick a country, pick a, a fish. Yeah, a fish. <laughs> pick an issue. Pick a topic. Pick yeah. a bird. Pick a fish. Um, so there there might not be complete academic freedom, but there's limited academic freedom, and so that can be very empowering. Working with two adults. Mm-hmm. Um, can be very empowering, you know, because each adult has a different teaching style and they can, you have, you know, the 
student-teacher ratio improves, mm -hmm. you sure. know, and the different teaching styles, one might jive with you a little bit better. So I think that UDL is not just for the collection development, but I feel like it also reinforces that teacher librarian collaboration sure. piece that we're, we're articulating for. I feel like it's all really kind of interconnected. Right. Um, I just, I guess, walking away from the article and now hearing you talk about it, it's it's really super promising, and I, I like the uh -huh. idea of reframing, but I just also feel like there's still a lot of rigidity in the system, right? Right. Like, you know, even to, even to have conversations about letting students uh, pick a different way to express what they've learned, to, to show their, uh -huh. you know, I don't like to use the term mastery of, <laughs> of a topic, right. but to, to demonstrate how they've learned and what they've learned is still so um, fixed for some, right. you know, institutions. Um, so when a librarian comes in and even makes the case, well, you know, maybe Susie'd like to do a PowerPoint, but maybe Johnny wants to do a podcast. The right. first question you get is, well, how do I assess this? Right. right? These are two different things. Um, and again, it just kind of takes everybody way out of their comfort zone and maybe puts that resentment factor in place. And so um, I'm, I'm just wondering what skill a librarian can use to sort of soften that or say, hey, it's not as complicated as you think to do the assessment if we want students to be able to you know, pick different ways of showing their, you know, how they've mastered the topic or how they, you know, what they've learned, show what they've learned. Uh -huh. So I don't know. I don't know if I have, I don't know if you have an answer to that. I don't have an answer to that. Yeah, no, um, I think that, you know, there, there is a Ta-Nehisi uh, Ta Coates quote mm -hmm. that I'm really fond of that comes from his book, Between the World and Me, where he says, um, I was made for the, the library, not the classroom. The mm -hmm. classroom was a jail of other people's interests. The library was open, unending, free. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the frustrations is that our kids come to the system and then we've defined for them what it is they're supposed to learn, mm -hmm. right? Like, and I like, I hate even having like learning objectives mm -hmm. sometimes because I feel like this is it. This is, this is the box that you have to learn in. You can only learn what's in this box, you know? I have a, a, a colleague that says, um, he has a riff on begin with the end in mind and he says begin with the endless in mind don't put boundaries on on whatever your learning is going to be and i feel like um i feel like that's kind of the that's kind of like the curiosity and the passion that we need to uh, nurture in our students and when you see um when you see studies about student engagement and you see that by the high school level, it hovers around 20 to 25%. My question is, how can we make it so that kids are 100% engaged mm -hmm. all the time that they're in school? I feel like being in that state of engagement is so, um, you know, we're so focused on standards and that kind of stuff. But I think the reality is that when you are engaged, you naturally um, start doing complex things mm -hmm. to learn and pursue information. And I feel like if we actually broke it down, we'd see that there's a lot of complex laying of standards that happens uh, with students when they are super engaged 100% of the time. They typically rise above our expectations well yeah it happens more organically for them i mean i think that's yes. always i think that's you know that's 
That's what we, yeah, that's definitely the holy grail, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, Pedro Nogueira, a very famous scholar, said, I wish that we didn't focus on achievement. I wish we focused on engagement. Because if we were so, if we were as focused on the engagement as we were on the achievement, then the achievement would follow. Yeah, and, and I've always thought, I mean, I've always believed that librarians are so uniquely positioned to create the engagement because we don't have always those um, parameters around us that a classroom teacher does. Um, We're the only classroom that offers academic freedom. That's right, exactly, exactly. You yeah. can come into my library and you can ask me for like a middle school student. I've had middle school students ask me for books on marijuana, mm -hmm. if they could read Main Comp, or I mean, like I, like I have had like the, like just from middle school students, I've had the widest range of things that are beyond the curriculum, mm -hmm. you know, that you would just be very surprised, you know, and shocked, you know. No, I, I had middle school students where I was a teacher librarian and I always I was always surprised by what they'd ask for. And I always lamented that I couldn't always get what they wanted. But, right. you know, hopefully provide them a suggestion where they could go and get it or talk to a parent about obtaining it for them. So I totally get that. Um, we have we have you've been really generous with your time today. Um, so I want to sure. I want to thank you for that. <laughs> And, 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 and my listeners don't know this, but I'll tell them we've been trying to talk for three days. So we were finally able to get the tech to work. So um, I, I do have to mention ed tech. <laughs> we finally got to work. So thank you for that. Um, is there any, the last question I just want to leave you with, is there any, uh, you identified those four system level priorities, equity and access, curriculum and instruction, college and career readiness, and universal design for learning. Is there anything you'd change or add to that? It's been a couple of years since the article came out. Um, you know what, in, in hindsight, I recognize some people have called, called me out on this and I, I agree that, that some of my distinctions are really a little bit artificial, mm -hmm. you know, like this, but not this. Mm -hmm. And my point wasn't to say don't argue for the first thing. It was just to think about it within a larger context. Right. So, um, you know, I mean, the idea of information literacy really runs through the curriculum instruction. We're really focused on something here called global competency. Mm -hmm. Now, that's been a big buzzword here. And I feel like I feel like our model school library standards in the state of California, they're very simple for us. This AEIOU, Access Information Evaluate, um, Integrate, um, Originate, and uh, Obtain. No, not Obtain, Originate, and Use Information. So if you remember the vowels, you can remember our standards. But I feel like the new... Um, AASL standards are go above and beyond that and mm -hmm. are more kind of aligned to that global competency where you're really thinking about preparing students to participate in a global society. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's probably, it's just maybe a more expanded understanding, but I, and I don't know that there are only four buckets or categories, mm -hmm. but that was just a starting point. No, I, and I, I assume that was the case, and I'm sure other people in other districts probably have different system priorities. Um, but I wanted you to know, I don't know if you were aware of this, but um, the Every Library 2019 Annual Report um, has come out, 
And they do echo your idea of reframing conversations. Um, and one of the things that they did is they gave specific examples about how public libraries can advocate in terms of constituents. Um, specifically, mm -hmm. how do you talk to a conservative group of patrons about library funding and how you would have the same conversation with our more liberal members? Right. <laughs> okay, and um, so I just I didn't know if you were aware of that, but I wanted you to be aware of it because I was like, oh, it just popped up on my radar um, after we had decided to talk. And I thought you, oh, okay. I thought you would find that interesting. So it's the Every Library 2019 Annual Report. Um, so I, oh, okay. I recommend you take a look at it. Jonathan, okay. thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and I will give you a heads up when the podcast is posted. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Thank you for having me. Okay, we'll talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye, Mel.